Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. The pandemic is still ongoing, and its effects may be felt in communities for some time. Today, we wanted to focus on housing instability in Connecticut and find out how local communities have been working to reduce homelessness. Coming up, we'll hear from Journey Home, a nonprofit that serves the greater Hartford region, and we'll talk about homelessness trends across the country. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome our first guest to the show on Zoom with us, Rabbi Donna Berman. She's Executive Director of the Charter Oak Cultural Center in Hartford, Connecticut. Rabbi Berman, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Lucy. I know many of our listeners are familiar with Charter Oak, and I didn't realize that Charter Oak had once been a synagogue back until the 1930s. So tell us more about the mission of the Cultural Center today. Yeah, we're housed in the first synagogue built in Connecticut, and uh, we are a multicultural arts center, and we do the work of social justice through the arts. So tell us more about that work that you're doing, some of the programs that you do, Rabbi Berman. Well, we we do this, the work of social justice through the arts in, in three ways. Um, we have performances in the sanctuary of the synagogue. And uh, again, it doesn't function as a synagogue per se mm-hmm. anymore. Um, but uh, we have performances from which we turn no one away for lack of funds because we feel that the arts are a human right, not a luxury. We have um, a youth arts institute, which serves a thousand Hartford children with really high quality arts education. And it's all free. And we have three programs for the homeless community. We started Connecticut's first street paper, which is a newspaper written by homeless people and their allies. And, uh, in it, and it's now in its 11th year, I'm proud to say. And, we start, and that's called Beat of the Street. And then we started a program called Eats of the Street, um, which in, through which we put pots of organic vegetables um, on the streets of Hartford. And we hire and train people in the homeless community to take care of them. And anyone in need can pick the vegetables when they're ripe. Mm, that sounds like a great and, program. Uh, Rabbi yeah. Berman, can we go back to Beat of the Street, uh, the city pa- the paper that uh, you said has been ongoing now for 11 years? So tell us more about uh, the members of those who are experiencing homelessness, the ones that are writing, and what's happening uh, with that that paper? Oh, the paper is just flourishing. We get, we get uh, submissions from all over the state. Um, we've only seen, a, seen an increase over the 11 years. And so what we do, our model is a little bit different than other cities. In other cities, uh, people in the homeless community buy the paper for a quarter and they stand on, on, on the streets and they sell it for a dollar. Um, but for several reasons, we didn't think that was a good model for Hartford. So what we do is we have an editorial board made up of people in the homeless community and they decide what's get, what gets published in the paper each month. 
and then people get paid for their articles or their puzzles or their uh, photographs or poems, whatever they submit that gets published. And then we hire people to um, deliver the paper throughout the city. Mm. And this today's show is pegged to how the pandemic has impacted housing instability in our state and across the country. But I'm wondering, with this street paper, what kind of content has been in the paper over the last several months, Rabbi Berman? Well, the paper really focuses on what's right, right up on um, uh, what's most current in people's lives, and so a lot about the about the pandemic and the, how it's hit the homeless community in particular. And many of the members of our um, we call it the bots community at Charter Oak, um, they've had COVID. Uh, they've they, their struggles have just increased during the pandemic, so we've increased our services beyond what we were doing before too. Mm-hmm. One is more. The third program, by the way, Lucy, that we do is we have a, a that's what we call the Center for Creative Learning, and it's a school for people in the homeless community, mostly arts based. And when people graduate from our school, they're eligible for a full scholarship to Goodwin University, and we give everyone a laptop. And that has been a real lightning rod during the pandemic. Our, our, our uh, attendance at classes has only increased, and our registration has only increased. You're hearing Rabbi Donna Berman here on Where We Live. She's executive director of the Charter Oak Cultural Center in Hartford, Connecticut. As we learn more about uh, local organizations that are working to help people experiencing homelessness or have unstable housing, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, You mentioned increasing services, uh, this laptop uh, program being one of them. I'm curious if you could tell us more about how the other services you've had uh, to increase over the pandemic? Because so many people need help, Rabbi Berman. Oh, my goodness. So many people need help. So we we, we normally give out some clothing and food. We, we try to be kind of a full service support for the people in the bots community. But we gave out, you know, masks and coats and food. And we're constantly um, in contact with the people that we serve in the bots community, asking, you know, what they need, what their friends need. So, um, and in terms of our Youth Arts Institute, um, we're in contact with our families all the time. Several uh, members of their families came down with COVID. We were making sure that they had uh, proper medical care. We were dropping off food. And because everything now is virtual, um, in the beginning of each semester, and we have free summer camps also for children. So at the beginning of each week of summer camp, we our staff hand-delivered boxes of supplies to all of the children and their families for the for that particular semester or that week of camp so you know ballet shoes or um and they're, they're the instrument they're learning to play and sheet music and uh yoga mat if it's a yoga class so all kinds of all kinds of things and healthy snacks too for the week mm-hmm. or the, earlier you know, for the semester earlier you mentioned eats of the street program and i just wanted to hear the origin story of that rabbi berman yeah, it's a great, it's a, actually a great story. Uh, we had an intern, um, oh, I think about 10 years ago, his name is Ethan Burke. And um, he was just a wonderful intern. And while he was there for us in the summer, he uh, went to Manhattan one weekend, and he saw a man hunched over, uh, clearly a man in need, hunched over a pot of flowers. And he came back and he said, Donna, what if that pot had vegetables in it? 
And that was the beginning of Eats of the Street. And we did some research because uh, we didn't want to reinvent the wheel to see if any other communities throughout the country were doing anything like that. And we couldn't find anything that was a kind of concerted systemic uh, effort. So we we just started putting pots on the on the street that summer. I think it was the summer of 2012 or 13. And we started with just a few pots and um, it's very scalable. So it always depends on how much money we raise for the program. But there have been summers when we've had 32 pots or last summer we had 25 pots. And last summer, because of the pandemic and we wanted to increase uh, the amount of food we were providing for people, uh, with the help of the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, it's just so generous, we were able to add hydroponic systems to the pots. So we produced a ton of food last summer, um, 2,000 pounds. And um, so we increased the number of pots, we put the um, hydroponic systems in, and those were large hydro hydroponic systems, but we also gave 100 hydroponic systems to 50 of our families. They each got two individual systems so they could grow vegetables in their own homes. Mm, that's really important to provide that flexibility, Rabbi Berman. Yes. And so we hire and we hire and we train, as I said, homeless people, people in the homeless community to, to take care of these of the pots and they so they get paid for that. So it, it uh, provides uh, an income for them. And so if uh, people are driving around Hartford, they see these pots Are there signs next to them that, that say free food for people. Yes, 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 they do. It seems like there's a, a real big emphasis on creating community and relationships at Charter Oak for people who are listening who want to help uh, because we know that a lot of people are struggling. What can they do to, to assist you and your staff and the programs that you're doing? Oh, that's such a great question. You know, for us, um, the program that we provide for people in the homeless community is the hardest programming to raise money for. And uh, so we're always in need. Again, you know, for example, um, eats of the street, the more money we have, the more pots, the more hydroponic systems, the more food we can produce, the more people we can hire. Um, and by the way, the pots are painted by artists. So um, eats of the street brings food jobs and art to Hartford. Um, but um, so people can volunteer. We have, they can volunteer to teach in our uh, uh, center for, um, um, our, our, our BOT Center for Creative Learning. We'd love to have people teach in, 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 in the school. Um, they can come and help us distribute boxes of supplies. Um, we, it, there are just, just a variety of ways that people can help and we would welcome any kind of help that they could provide. We'll be sure to tweet out a link uh, to your website for our listeners to learn more. Again, uh, Rabbi Donna Berman is the Executive Director of the Charter Oak Cultural Center in Hartford. Thank you so much, Rabbi Berman. I can't wait to, to meet you in person uh, and uh, get a tour of the work that you're doing in, in the Hartford area. Oh, I look forward to that too, Lucy. Thank you so much. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up, we're going to hear from another Connecticut organization working to help residents who are experiencing homelessness. And we find out how the pandemic has affected the number of Connecticut residents who don't have stable housing right now. We'll also zoom out to learn what homelessness looks like around our country. You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness told NBC Connecticut recently that more than 2,900 residents are experiencing homelessness right now in our state. Now, how has the number of people affected by housing instability changed in the pandemic? Joining us now with more on Zoom is Amanda Gordon. She's Deputy Executive Director of Journey Home. It's a nonprofit organization that works to end homelessness in the capital region of Connecticut, so it serves about three dozen towns. Amanda, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me. So I mentioned this number uh, that was quoted by uh, Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness, and we know that the pandemic has uh, brought up a lot of challenges, including how to quantify uh, the number of people that need help. So what do you know today about what homelessness looks like in our state? Sure. So homelessness is varied in our state. I, I think oftentimes many people have an image of homelessness, but the homeless population, those experiencing homelessness in Connecticut is a very population. We have families who may be falling into homelessness for the first time. We have single individuals who may have run out of options or places to stay. Folks who have become homeless because they've had a medical emergency and lost all of their funding. People who have temporarily lost their job due to unemployment. So it's, it's not a standard picture and it, it really differs across the state. Um, we have, you know, Connecticut Coalition did say that over 2,900 people are homeless, but that's a decrease of about 25% over the last five years, which is great. We have continued to decrease homelessness in the state of Connecticut, I think because of our coordinated and collaborative efforts across the board. So that is the good news. Uh, earlier this year, I believe there was the point in time count. And so uh, was it difficult uh, this year for you and, and your colleagues in this network uh, to reach out to people who are experiencing housing instability, especially this year because of the pandemic? Sure. So usually we re rely on some volunteers to go out and do canvassing. Um, for the pit count. This year, we relied heavily on our outreach workers to really let us know who was out there. So they had to do a bit more um, work on the last couple weeks of, of January just to reach out to the folks that might be out there, confirm whether or not they were out there. Despite the pandemic, our frontline staff have continued to go to work every day to do their jobs to really help those that are outside in need. Um, and so, you know, we were really grateful to them for the work that they've done and how they really stepped up this year to help us with the pit count. When we think about all of the different organizations in communities helping people who are experiencing homelessness, there's a, a coordinated entry program, I understand, uh, for people who need shelter. Can you describe that for us and how it works? Sure. So it's really meant to be a standardized, fair process from the point that any household experiences a housing crisis to the point that we're able to get them into stable housing. So it starts in Connecticut by calling 211. Hopefully those calls are only about five to 10 minutes a piece. And really we start with an assessment. They meet with a, what we call a diversion specialist, trying to consider their options. Can they, you know, can we quickly get them into a new apartment with very short-term assistance, like a security deposit? Can we mediate to help them return to live with mom or dad? Did they have an argument and it's just a matter of smoothing things over? Um, can they find a roommate to help make things a little bit more affordable? And through those diversion efforts, we've been able to keep 80% of families 
out of the shelter system and about 40% of individuals. So we know, you know, that's a very successful initiative in the state of Connecticut. Um, for those that were not able to keep out of shelter, you know, we do have a prioritized list to try and get access to shelter beds, which has obviously proven a little bit uh, challenging because of the pandemic. Most shelters had to decrease their number of beds in order to, to stay safe during COVID. Um, we also saw some shelters relocate to hotels to keep their, their staff and their clients safe. Um, and then from shelter, we have a standardized system, a centralized list of everybody who may be in need of assistance to get out of their housing crisis. Um, and so we connect people with housing resources in a prioritized manner as well, hoping to find them, um, you know, an apartment where they can stably remain housed for the rest of their lives. So we are all working together, 30 plus providers from the point that they call 211 to the point that we get them into an apartment. Um, and, you know, this has been in place for about the last five years um, in the state of Connecticut. And I really think that's why we've seen the success we have with regards to the reductions in homelessness across our state. Amanda, you mentioned listeners or anyone can call 211 if they need assistance. I'm wondering what the wait time for assistance uh, looks like when we think about so many people calling 211, especially with help trying to get connected to a vaccine. Sure. So, uh, you know, our partners at 211 strive to get to the person on the phone as quickly as possible. It should average about a five to 10 minute wait. Um, they do tell us that Mondays are the busiest days. So if folks have the opportunity to call on other days, they definitely should. Um, in terms of how long it takes to get seen by the, the coordinated access system after a call to 211, we really do strive to reach out to that person within 24 to 48 hours. For families in urgent need, we try to talk to them same day because we really don't want to have children um, under 18 end up on the streets. So we really do strive to have a as quick of a, a process as possible, understanding that yes, there is an increased burden on our system right now due to the pandemic. When you talk about people that need assistance, there there's a network that can uh, help them connect so that they're not uh, living, you know, outside or you know just not knowing where to go, um, and they're connected in, in some way. But I'm wondering about the people that may be falling through the cracks, uh, especially in this last year. Uh, people who enter into homelessness, it's all their experiences are all different. And so I'm wondering the people that might be couch surfing or going from one relative to the next, uh, looking for a place to, to, to stay, but it's short term. I mean, how do you connect with them? Sure, so folks that are, are couch surfing, jumping from one place to the next, as long as they're safe, safe we really do try to maintain those situations. Um, because there are so many people that don't have those options. We, you know, like I said before, we can try and help with security deposit assistance if they have, um, you know, income in order to pay rent moving forward. We can refer to housing authority wait lists if they are open for those households. Um, you know, I would say that the, the folks that we are most worried about are the ones who are, you know, unsheltered, sleeping out on the streets. Those are the ones that are kind of tend to fall through the cracks. And we're really excited that with the COVID, there's been some additional funding that's allowed us to create a new outreach team in partnership with Hands on Hartford Wheeler Clinic and the Greater Hartford Harm Reduction that will hopefully be able to be pounding the pavement, trying to find the encampments that are out there and really getting those really vulnerable individuals who may have severe and persistent mental health 
substance abuse or, or just, you know, be unwilling to or unable to really survive in a, in a in a shelter environment, we're really hoping to connect with those individuals because those are the typically the ones that fall through the cracks. We know uh, the state helped uh, people be housed in hotels that were in shelters when the pandemic started. Is that continuing, Amanda? To a limited degree, yes. So um, we, we quickly moved about 250 individuals in the greater Hartford area into hotels over this summer. Um, we were able to get some of them housed and really work with the shelters to set up their 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 you know system to make it safe for people to return to the shelter. So we do have um, one of our shelters continues to operate out of a hotel. And then for the cold weather season, when we wanted to increase our capacity again, we are now back in hotels. We have about 130 individuals in hotels across the region. Um, it was really important to provide that this year because most of the places that folks would normally stay during the day, like their libraries or their community centers are all closed because of the pandemic. So it was really important that we provide 24 seven um, sheltering opportunities for, for our homeless neighbors um, to keep them safe this cold weather season. You're hearing Amanda Gordon here on Where We Live. She's Deputy Executive Director of Journey Home. It's a nonprofit organization that works to end homelessness in the capital region of our state. Uh, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, coming up later, we're going to talk more about homelessness around our country. But I wanted to hear from someone who has been helped by Journey Home. And so joining us now on the phone is Teth Pickens. She's a member of the Youth Action Council for Lived Experience Youth. Uh, the council provides input to improve services and access to services for individuals, especially young people who've experienced homelessness. Teth, welcome to the show. Thank you. I wanted to hear how you first heard about Journey Home and got help from them. Well, I actually was um, in the shelter and they had listings on the board for the opportunity to join YSD. So I was still in the shelter when I first joined YSD, and I had not gotten housing yet. And um, I ended up getting peered with a different program that helped pay for the security deposit for my housing. But it was not through Journey Home. I only joined Journey Home through the YAC to do the work to help prevent homelessness because I was passionate about it because of my lived experience. But I never got actual resources from Journey Home. When uh, earlier in the year we talked to Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness uh, about how numbers of young people experiencing homelessness is increasing in our state, Teth, can you talk about that and um, you know how Youth Action Council is working to let policymakers know that there are people that need help, especially youth in our state? So one of my specific projects was YC. Um, I started a video which is basically me going around Hartford and New Britain and different parts of the greater Hartford area. And I basically like do a brief interview with people experiencing homelessness. And I ask them about their, um, how, how they um, experience using 211. Like if they ever called before and what was that experience like? Did they get the resources they needed? And if not, 
um, where were they referred to and things like that, just to put it in video form, because I think it's powerful to see the people who are actually enduring the homelessness and what they've been trying to do to get themselves out of it. So that's a video being worked on uh, for Journey Home for YAC. Um, another project is we were doing the van um, with resources so people that are directly impacted that are on the street, we could park the van in different spots, you know, with things on it. But because of COVID, we're, like, you know, redirecting that to do it in a different manner. But I believe we're still going through with it. Um, it's just different specific uh, projects that the YAC does that helps, um, like Amanda said, kind of um, find the people that slip through the cracks and provide resources for them. So, um and Tessa, you have lived experience. You understand what it's like uh, to uh, oh, be definitely. homeless. Mm -hmm. Yes, I lived you... under a bridge in East Hartford. Mm -hmm. um, I stayed on the streets, like hopping around to different people's houses uh, just to have a roof over my head. The entire time I was homeless, I kept a job because I knew that, um, you know, that would probably help me a little bit. But it took me a lot to be able to keep those jobs. Like, at first, I had to find, you know, get my um, birth certificate and my Social Security card and things like that. But once I w was able to get those with the programs while still being homeless, I was able to maintain jobs. So I feel like another thing we also been working on was waiving the fees for homeless youth and young adults so that they're able to get their identification so that they could get jobs and can maintain apartments and things like that. I'm glad that you brought that up. I know that there's a proposed bill uh, to increase access to identity documents and also waiving fees in order to obtain them. And that is that what you're hearing from people who, who need help? That that's a barrier if they're not able, yeah. if they don't have a these documents, job. how am I going to get a job or an apartment? Mm -hmm. that's, a whole, that's a big thing I hear from youth because they're like, okay, if I need my ID and I need my social and I need all this stuff to get a job and I cannot and I cannot obtain these things, how am I going to be able to keep going? You know, um, it's bad enough you're already enduring what you're enduring, but if you have roadblocks stopping you from getting out of it, it becomes even harder. So I agree. It's definitely a roadblock if you don't have the money to even pay that fee because you don't even have the job because you don't even have the document. You know what I mean? So it's like yeah. a chain effect. So once we stop some of those roadblocks, you know, people are able to keep pushing towards getting out of their current situation. It kind of gives us a little hope, you know, people who've been through homelessness and people who are still going through it because you see people actually trying to put things in legislation to make change so that you could keep going. Tess, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. And before we let you go, you know, we are talking with Amanda earlier and she said over the last five years, homelessness has been decreasing in our state. But do you worry with this pandemic uh, what the consequences will be, you know, a few months from now, you know, when people have lost their jobs and uh, may have uh, uh, medical issues? Uh, do you worry that the numbers will increase, especially with young people? I know it's possible, but I don't worry because of programs like ours. 
that are out here. Like I took the job for the outreach worker that Amanda was talking about. Mm-hmm. We got funding for, um, you know, some outreach work so we could really like hit the streets and go look for these encampments and look for these people. And I will actually be going out uh, Tuesday of this week. I'll be in East Hartford. I'll be in Manchester. And I will be going, you know, on the street to actually look for these people. So I feel like I know it's a possibility the numbers can increase, but no, I am not worried mm-hmm. because of programs like this one. Well, Teth Pickens, again, is a member of the Youth Action Council for Lived Experience Youth. Thank you, Teth, for your time. We really appreciate it. No problem. And Teth is also a singer, so coming up we're going to play uh, a song that uh, uh, Teth is singing uh, for you. But again, this is where we live, and we're talking about community programs to help Connecticut residents who are experiencing homelessness or housing instability. Uh, with me still on Zoom is Amanda Gordon with Journey Home. Uh, can you just respond to what Teth shared? And you know, again, as we're looking, uh, everyone's looking for the end of this pandemic, but maybe some of the, the concerns you may have uh, going forward Amanda, trying to reach people who need help. Sure. Thank you, Teth, for sharing your story. I literally just texted a colleague saying you had me in tears because it's great to hear how hopeful you are. Um, and we're blessed to have you on our on our team. So thank you. Um, I would say that one unknown area that our system is really trying to ramp up and work on is the prevention area. Um, Obviously, we've had an eviction moratorium in place for several months now, but when that ends, we are not sure what the picture is going to look like, how many people are going to be at homelessness's front door. Um, And so we have been working diligently on prevention tactics, prevention programs, trying to get them up and running so that when the doors open, if they do, that we are prepared to, you know, triage each situation and figure out the way that we can prevent people from entering homelessness. We know that one of the biggest predictors of homelessness is a prior episode of homelessness. So whenever we can prevent people from entering the system in the first place, that is obviously our our first goal. Um, So I would say that it is the evictions um, that are our biggest concern at this point, because I don't think we know, you know, ultimately what that's going to look like. But between the state and our local regions, we are really working to get a, a safety net in place um, to make sure that we can handle it when it, it when or if it does occur. And I believe Connecticut's eviction moratorium is set to expire April 20th. Is that right, Amanda? I believe so at this point. Um, we don't know if it'll get extended. It's been extended many times before. Um, obviously, you know, we are sympathetic both to the tenants and to the, the landlords um, that are enduring, you know, the lack of income. Um, and so we're, we're grateful to have these rental assistance programs that are able to both help the tenants and the landlords because we know, you know, everybody is feeling the impact at this point. I'm glad you brought that up because Journey Home does have a landlord risk reduction reduction fund. So that's able to help uh, landlords who may have tenants who aren't able to pay the rent over the last several months. Yes. Yeah, so we, we know that some of our folks come with barriers to housing, whether that's um, eviction histories or um, you know, poor rental histories. Many of them may never have rented a unit of their own, especially our young adults like Ted. 
Um, and so we do try to use that risk reduction fund just to offer the landlords an additional level of support if something were to go wrong. A lot of them just have concerns and we, we understand and hear that and you know, try to come up with creative ways that we can help everyone involved. Again, you're hearing Amanda Gordon, Deputy Executive Director of Journey Home here on Where We Live as we talk about homelessness in our state. Coming up, we're going to hear from Steve Berg, Vice President of Programs and Policy for the National Alliance to End Homelessness. And as we head to break, I wanted to play again a portion of a song by Teth Pickens, who we heard from earlier, a member of the Youth Action Council. Here's Teth singing You're a Woman. We'll link it to our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Back after a short break. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. With me on Zoom, Amanda Gordon, Deputy Executive Director of Journey Home. It's a nonprofit organization that works to end homelessness in the capital region. And we just heard uh, from um, a person that was helped by Journey Home. But we wanted to get an idea of some of the trends being seen nationally. So joining us now is Steve Berg, Vice President for Programs and Policy for the National Alliance to End Homelessness. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks, Lucy. Thanks for having me. We know through the pandemic, unemployment has been a huge issue for so many. Some jobs are now being recovered. But, you know, we're all wondering, has homelessness increased during the last year? It's almost certainly increased. I mean, there's no sort of perfect national data source, but just community after community is seeing more people in the streets. I mean, you talked with Amanda a little more, a little earlier about how many people avoid homelessness by relying on their families or friends to put them up for a while. In in the time of COVID, with everyone worrying about spreading the disease, I think that's less available to a lot of people. So many, many places are seeing more people on the streets, more people looking for shelter. The shelters are too crowded. That's not safe either. Um, it's been a tough situation. Amanda Gordon, when we think about this pandemic and people are now getting vaccinated, what about people in shelters? Are they able to get the vaccine? Yes. So luckily, most of our shelters um, have been vaccinated at this point. Uh, they were offered the opportunity because of our how we prioritized vaccinations through the state. Uh, so they are considered to be in congregate living. Um, we do see a little bit of the vaccine hesitancy still among the population and the staff and our, our providers and our partners are, are working to ameliorate any fears that people have and to educate them um, about the vaccine and try to encourage folks to get the vaccine. You know, we've been lucky enough not to really have many outbreaks at all in our homeless population, but this the vaccination is just an additional level of, you know, hope for us moving forward in our shelter system. Mm-hmm. 
Steve Berg, uh, the Hartford Current here in our state, uh, reported that uh, the state had allocated about $55 million for housing assistance. And a lot of that they're hoping to recoup from the federal government, of course. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk about, uh, you know, under the Biden administration, what is the priority for helping people experiencing homelessness? And we heard Amanda say with eviction moratoriums expiring in our state, there's a real wave that people are concerned about of more people needing help. Yes, I think everyone's concerned about that. I mean, the, the good news is, I think, at the political level, the issue of homelessness and housing has become much more on people's minds, uh, both in the public and then among among their elected representatives in Washington, D.C. So we, we've, uh, the federal government has made more money available to provide rental assistance to people who are either homeless and need to move into an apartment or who are in danger of losing their homes. Uh, there was a, a Congress passed a, a law including $25 billion for rental assistance in December. And they're working, I think, this week to pass another law which would provide another $22 billion on that. And that those are amounts of money that are capable of really solving the problem, really doing the job if they're used effectively and really targeted to the people who are most likely to to need help. So we're we're hopeful that, again, as as Tess was saying, you know, it's it's not so much that we're worried because we feel like the answers are there and the programs are there to do it. We just have to make it happen. Do you feel that public awareness of homelessness and and housing instability, there are people that are paying attention to this more, especially because so many people have had difficulties in the last year, Steve? Sure, I think that's right. I mean, it's so many people talk about, well, the coronavirus is dangerous, but all you have to do is stay home. And as soon as you get those words out of your mouth, you realize, oh, there's hundreds of thousands of people around the country and people that you see every day in every community who don't have a home to go to. So there's no, the, the, what, what many people consider to be the sort of easy answer is not available to people or homeless. I think that's raised awareness a lot. And definitely we're seeing more of a response from the federal government. What about issues of alleviating stigma in the past when people, some people may see someone who's homeless and, you know, there's definitely a judgment there, but I feel mm-hmm. like in this pandemic, we have all realized that we're just a couple paychecks away from yeah. having our own yeah. emergency. And, and it's, I think, um, really poignant uh, for people to reflect on, you know, it could be one of us. Yes, it could be. I mean, that's that's been the case for a long time. You know, anyone who works on the issue of homelessness always runs into people who, you know, a few years earlier had seemed like their life was completely stable and and uh, and they would never have thought of themselves as being in danger of homelessness. But then something happens. uh, Somebody gets sick. A family member has problems. Uh, a job disappears or a whole industry disappears in some cases and suddenly people are right there on the streets i mean it's it's uh it's uh something that i think more and more people are aware of in a time like this where there's a, a disease going around that can cause those kinds of issues 
Again, you're hearing Steve Berg, Vice President of Programs and Policy for the National Alliance to End Homelessness. Steve, you spent some time in Connecticut uh, during your career uh, a few, uh, several years ago. And I'm wondering when we think about Connecticut and some of the initiatives and even policy coming down from former and current governors related to people with housing instability, Connecticut seems to have it together. But when you look at other states, I mean, where do you see some of the gaps? Yeah, well, I think Connecticut has, I think, long been a state that's functioning at a very high level in terms of dealing with issues like homelessness. So that's good. It's still nowhere is perfect and no and it still requires a certain amount of money that isn't always there, although it's more the money is more available now with some of these federal resources. But I think the state responses have been varied. I, I think there's there's a, a there's been a growing understanding that there's a solution to homelessness over the last 10, 15 years, slowly but surely that that response has been growing and more and more places have done what Connecticut has done, which is really work on finding people who lose their housing and keeping them safe and then quickly getting them back into housing. Um, and that's happening more and more. But again, the the the. Uh, it, it takes leadership and it takes know-how and it takes money. And those three things are not present everywhere. And we're, we're hoping that the, the increased awareness that we're seeing from the coronavirus will help uh, move that along. We think it is going to help move that along. I wanted to bring Amanda Gordon back into the conversation again. She's deputy director at Journey Home. Amanda, we've talked about medical emergencies or the fact that people have lost their jobs, and those all can be factors, uh, risk factors to enter into homelessness. But we're also talking uh, in a state that has a high cost of living, and there's not a lot of affordable housing or multifamily or apartments available to people who, you know, their wages are not high. And so I'm wondering when we look at public policy, of the General Assembly, you know, what will you be watching for in terms of of several bills before our lawmakers to address this issue? Sure. So, you know, affordable housing, as you mentioned, is is a large issue. We are um, pursuing a shared housing initiative across the state of Connecticut, trying to uh, encourage roommate situations to make housing a little bit more affordable. And we do know that zoning regulations have a lot to do with whether or not shared housing is possible in some of the areas. So we are working with local municipalities on their zoning regulations um, to try and make that a possible housing solution for folks. At the state level, you know, we're we're really looking at investment in housing, not only, um, you know, in the housing itself, but also in service dollars um, to help stabilize people once they get in that housing, help make sure that they have their budgets in order and that they are connected to services to help them prevent another housing crisis in the future. And so services has been a a large priority of our our housing coalition across the state this year. Um, Again, funding for the coordinated access system that you mentioned, you know, the success we have and the solutions we found have only been possible because we've all worked together and that infrastructure takes funding to, to maintain the system as it is. And so we're really asking the state to make sure that there is funding available to support agencies like Journey Home and others across the state to provide that backbone level of support. Um, I know towns are looking at their their zoning regulations and um, part of, you know, 
desegregate CT. There's a lot of initiatives happening across the state trying to encourage small towns to build multifamily housing. Uh, you mentioned that there's not a ton available and it is true, it's much harder to find multifamily housing outside of our urban centers in Connecticut. And it's, it's incredibly important, even your duplexes, your three family homes, just make it a lot more feasible for folks um, with low income to be able to move to towns with good school systems and and you know with the the clean air and the playscapes that their children really deserve to have. And so um, we're working at it on a variety of levels across the state, I would say. I've been living in Connecticut now for 13 or so years, and I feel like this conversation about uh, housing affordability has been a long one. Amanda, do you feel like Finally, there might be some headway when we're talking about changing zoning or making sure that there's more affordable housing available to people, working people who have jobs but maybe can't afford to live in particular communities at this time. Yeah, I am definitely hopeful. I think that it's a complex issue, uh, particularly when you talk about infrastructure um, in terms of water infrastructure. I know in my own small town, um, you know, we don't have public sewers or public water, so it makes multifamily housing a bit more challenging. Things like transportation in the state of Connecticut, it's something we need to work on so that people can live in one town and work in another. Um, you know, that's often a reason why people stay in um, Hartford or centers like Manchester and East Hartford to be close to work because transportation can also be a barrier for them. So. I am hopeful, but I do think that there's a, a big, big picture and a bigger system that we need to look at in order to make it work. Are there particular groups in our state that are harder to reach or may be unable to get some of the services we've talked about this hour, whether it's uh, people that have substance abuse issues or reentry population? We're hearing that the, the prison population has decreased dramatically. Where are these individuals going? Are they falling through the cracks, Amanda? There's a lot of work um, happening across the state, particularly with the reentry population. Um, there's pilots going on supported by Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness and the Department of Corrections, where they are really trying to help those inmates who may have nowhere to go after they are, are released from incarceration, trying to get them straight into housing, um, you know, so that they do not experience homelessness. So that's a great new initiative that we're, we're looking to to see how that goes. And I believe it is actually expanding um, one population that is always, you know, underserved is the, the immigrant population. We are able to assist them with some of our resources, but not all of them. Um, and so that is a population that we constantly have to, to be aware of. Um, those with, you know, our, our sex offender population, um, some of them who have received that label because of very minor um, infractions, you know, they are also often harder to house. We do the best that we can and there are resources available to help them. Um, you know, so we're looking at the population as a whole, understanding that within the, the folks that are experiencing homelessness that, you know, each person has a different experience and we kind of have to have tailored initiatives to help each person with their own unique barriers to, um, to obtain stable housing. Earlier, we mentioned uh, to Rabbi Berman, if people wanted to help the Charter Oak Cultural Center, the best way to do that. Uh, Nancy wants to know if a private citizen wants to help your organization or others, what's the best way to do that? Absolutely. Thank you for asking. So we have um, our A Hand Up program, which is a home goods and furniture donation program. 
most of our folks who go into their first apartment when they're leaving a shelter or leaving their encampment have you know just the clothes on their back um, and so our a hand up program provides furniture kitchen goods linens to the folks who are moving into their new apartments um, and that program we have only one paid staff for that program we are very reliant on volunteers to both donate the furniture and the goods but also uh, to help us drive the trucks and deliver them um, and we are always looking for volunteers um, for that program we make opportunities available morning afternoon and weekend so we really should be able to work within your schedule um, and then I would say the other thing that we could really use are landlords. If you are a small landlord with a multifamily house and you would be willing to work with us to rent one of your units or more than one of your units to folks who have experienced housing instability, you know, please reach out to our organization. We're happy to have a conversation with you and, and discuss that further. Well, I want to thank Amanda Gordon again for joining us here, Deputy Executive Director of Journey Home. Amanda, we appreciate your time today. Thanks, Lucy. And also Steve Berg was with us, Vice President of Programs and Policy for the National Alliance to End Homelessness. Steve, thanks for your perspective as well. Sure. Thanks for having me on. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show was produced by Joe Vasquez and Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow talking about high-speed rail. We hope you join us.